don't know this, then you're behind the times. The only metric that matters is convenience. Rules apply to you. Suddenly you're an advertiser. This week on Social Minds. Where does tax responsibility start and end? Do you want them to become places where someone can literally log in and get therapy? We were joined by Isabel Gerard, an academic at the University of Sheffield's Department of Sociology and a member of Facebook's advisory board for suicide and self-harm. Now, as such, this episode will discuss sensitive topics, including eating disorders, suicide and self-harm. So if those topics are triggering for you in any way, please feel free to switch off. We won't hold it against you and we'll see you for a brand new episode next week. Yes, it was incredibly refreshing to hear a response to these topics, not from a tabloid or newspaper, but from someone whose role it is to advise the platforms themselves. In this podcast, we spoke about whether or not Facebook's moves to ban likes will impact pro-Anna communities, the often hidden world that those most at risk operate in on social media, and whether or not we will conclusively prove the impact of social mental health. We're never, ever gonna be able to say conclusively, this is the effect that social media has. But what we can already say is, this is an aspect of social media that is highly triggering. All this and more, coming up. Do Facebook's policies around suicide, self-harm and eating disorders do enough? I think that's a good question. And that's a question that I get asked really frequently, especially when I do media work. But it's a really hard one to answer because I'm not convinced that any tech company can ever really kind of be doing enough because that implies that there's sort of an end point, you know, when everything gets fixed and everything's solved and it's all, you know, shiny happy and that's not especially with this kind of topic, that's not really the case. We're constantly learning more. It's constantly evolving. But I will say that I think that they are doing better than they have been doing in the past. So I'm thinking of sort of 2012, 2013, when a lot of the big stories came out about pro-Anna communities in particular on Facebook and whatnot. And so I think that they're doing better now. They're consulting with more experts. Their rules are better. The language they use is better. It's all just better than it was before. But again, I'm not 100% convinced that anyone can ever really do enough. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at this point, do you think that maybe they're, they're doing enough to sort of take responsibility for at least the part that they're playing in it? And also, I guess, enough sort of not to warrant the criticism, I guess. That's what we want to get at is like, do you think they deserve all the criticism they get? Or are they actually, you know, trying? They are trying. Um, I mean, I, I do sit on their suicide and self-injury advisory board. So yeah. naturally, I'm going to say that they're trying because I'm one of the people who is trying. And so, yeah, absolutely that they are trying. I think it's really hard to ever know what role they're playing in it. Because it's not like, I don't know, when somebody smokes or drinks and it affects their health over over time and their health deteriorates and you can, you know, chart it happening in the body. You can't necessarily tell as easily what social media is doing to someone's mental illness or to their eating disorder. It's really hard to chart. And so we don't... I suppose it'll be so different for everybody as well. Exactly. 
we don't really know what role they are playing 100%. It's it's just very, very complicated. And the blame game is really dangerous. I think it's really dangerous to just blame them. But I think it's really dangerous to just absolve them of any responsibility. Yeah, definitely. I guess if you put all the blame on them, it's like they're a scapegoat and other factors might be missed. Yeah, exactly. It's just, It's really, really complicated. But I think that it is... It is right, though, to push tech companies. It is right to put pressure on them. It's right to find out that something is wrong, you know, and write a piece about it. Like I've done that in the past. I've done that about Instagram. It is right to put pressure on them because pressure leads to change generally. And so I think that people are kind of doing the right thing. But I'm not convinced it's always productive to just to just place blame. Yeah, definitely. Isabel, can I ask, is this a problem that's been exasperated by social media? Or would you just say that, you know, Facebook and Instagram are what two magazines and um, airbrushing were, say, 15, 20 years ago? It's hard. Again, that's a really, really hard question to answer because we don't, we don't know conclusively, you know, what extent social media companies are playing in exacerbating these problems. What I will say is that we've seen an uptick in reported cases of things like eating disorders over the last few years. And there's been some attempt to kind of correlate that with the rise of social media. But then that's discounting other factors like, you know, destigmatization of mental health. Yeah. And even just like awareness, increased awareness. See, people might just be hearing about these topics online for the first time and think, oh, OK, that sounds like me. And then obviously go to treat it. Whereas before, I imagine a lot of things went untreated. I guess like going into the specifics of the platforms, when we get into things like algorithms and targeting content and sensitive content like that, we know, obviously, working in the business that we do, that content on the more emotional side or controversial side does tend to pick up steam faster just because it's human nature. It's what we react to more. And then I guess with things like recommended for you, you could get into a spiral, essentially, if you were engaging with controversial, sensitive content, and then the algorithm is basically rewarding you for it. So I guess, like, what evidence have you seen on that from the inside? And how much are they aware of that? How much is that, um, like, a goal to, to fix? Yeah, I think that they're really good points. And that it also kind of links to the last question, because even though it's really hard to pinpoint to what extent they've kind of exacerbated these problems. We're in new terrain. You know, it is different. It's different to picking up a magazine. It's different to watching a TV show or seeing an advert. It is different because we we experience social life different. We're experiencing communication really differently. And so it is different. And they are absolutely aware of their role in kind of I don't know what the word is, kind of like organizing sociality and like organizing communication. So yeah. I'm thinking of Facebook's, I can't quite remember what year this was published, maybe 2017, 2018. But Mark Zuckerberg wrote a blog post about borderline content. Like it's not bad enough to be banned or removed from the yeah. platform, but it's not great. You know, yeah. it's this kind of really fuzzy gray area and they call that borderline content. And one of the things that Mark wrote about in that blog post was the idea that people, like you've just said, tend to engage with um, controversial content and that that's what gets clicks and likes and shares. And so his argument was, even though it's kind of not necessarily bad enough to be banned, it's controversial and that's a problem. That can be a problem because it kind of sparks emotionality. So they are aware 
of these things for sure. It's just the, the skeptic in me, I guess, wonders like when we know how their business model works without those clicks and without those shares, they kind of wouldn't be in the place that they are. So, so they do need them to an extent. And maybe that's stopping them slightly from wanting to change it too much. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is where a lot of the um, I'm thinking of like the House of Lords and all of the, you know, the online harms white paper and all of these different government interventions. Governments want increased regulation of platforms like this precisely because of what you've just said, that actually what's good for profit and what clicks and shares and likes, what keeps people on the platform isn't always doing people any good. Um, And there does need to be a better line between, okay. You're allowed to do this because, you know, at the end of the day, you're a company and we all use social media. Like we can sit and criticize it as much as we like. We all use the thing. There's something in it. But also recognizing, okay, but that's a problem. You know, we were talking about recommendation systems a minute ago, thinking back to the Molly Russell case. I mean, just, you know, very much a trigger warning for this. But Molly was a teenager who she took her own life a few years ago. And she'd been viewing self-harm and suicide imagery on Instagram and Pinterest in particular. And her dad has been a really powerful voice in the media since then, trying to get platforms to change how they work and to kind of get rid of this kind of imagery. And one of the things that they've been doing that's been really powerful that he's played a huge role in is changing the way that recommendation systems work and making sure that we change what kinds of content can and can't be recommended to people. Because for Molly, it just became a rabbit hole. She would go on her Pinterest and she would see the same stuff. She would go on her Instagram and she would see the same stuff. That's what needs to change. That's what can't be allowed to happen. Especially, I think, if it gets to a certain point where maybe you have one day when you're not searching for it and maybe you need to see something else that day, but the algorithm doesn't know that. It thinks you come back time and again for the same thing. And when it's being served to you instead of you searching for it, that, that becomes a problem, I think. 100%. And Isabel, I'm keen to know within your role on, on the advisory board as well, because you mentioned uh, the House of Lords then. And uh, one of the trends that we see in social media is that it feels like nobody knows Facebook better than Facebook. So ultimately, Facebook have the key to make these changes. From an advisory point of view, what sort of suggestions you know, would you recommend and do you recommend and how do they often get appeared? Because to the layman, you could say it seems like, well, this is simple, just span all that sort of content. But like you said, it goes a lot deeper than this and there's a lot more societal issues within this. Yeah, there's quite a few of us on the board and we each specialise in something and it's a mix of kind of academics, people who work for charities, health professionals, clinicians. You know, it's a real, real range of people which is great. So you're getting different perspectives. But I think one of the things that's really benefited me being on the board is that I know how all the platforms work. I'm very, very, very familiar with them. So I'm kind of, I, one of the people I work with said that I I kind of draw the line between policy advisory board, but also product. So making suggestions about how products work. It's very fair and it's actually quite a democratic process. So we can choose to put things on the agenda. We can make suggestions and like 90% of the things that I've suggested or that we've discussed have happened. Some things happen quicker than others, but I do, I actually, I feel heard and they don't pay me as well. So there's no, (laughs) I don't have to say any of this stuff, 
Um, so that's how it works. That's good. Can you maybe give us some examples of some things that you or one of your colleagues have suggested? Yeah. So one of the bigger things that I worked on was, you know, those like skinny teas and like the diet pills you see being advertised everywhere and they collect, they make miracle claims. So, you know, you take this pill and you can lose like 10 pounds in three days. And then also adverts for cosmetic surgery procedures. Yes. This didn't actually take very long to implement really, but we've now age-gated ads for cosmetic procedures. So if you sign up when you're under 18, you won't see those. Um, And then we've also tried to ban adverts for products that make miracle claims around weight loss. That one can be a little tricky to implement because, you know, what counts as a miracle claim? And then also people are just savvy and they just change the language. But it was a start. You know, it's the start of something really good. And that's something that I wasn't convinced would happen because, you know, companies pay the platform to advertise on them. Yeah, I kind of just thought, oh, no, profit models won't won't allow this to happen. But AI was wrong about how the advertising system worked anyway. It's a lot more complex than I thought. And B, they saw that it, you know, that it was kind of the right thing to do. I think especially when it comes to ads and it's like, that's when they start profiting off it. That's when they get the most heat. So I can understand them actually wanting to make changes towards that because even though it could potentially have a bigger impact, it was a small slice of their revenue really in the grand scheme of things. And they're more likely to get bad press if they don't. I'm curious more about, say, the organic content. So for things like eating disorders, you mentioned like pro-ana communities. Some of that is so harmful, but there's an, there's another side of it where people go to for like recovery advice um, and it can be like making friends and some people use it to find support. So I guess like how much work is being put into policing organic content and these communities um, and is that harder than policing adverts? Well, that's a really good question. So I will just start by saying there's nowhere near as much pro ana content as people think. I mean, it's obviously a very, very big deal and it's very harmful to the people who are engaging with it and seeing it. And it shouldn't be there. But it's just not as big. It's not as big of a thing. But I've, I've always really struggled to kind of make decisions about pro ana content, even though that's kind of like literally why they put me on the board. And I really, I'm one of the ones who really, str- I do eventually make decisions you have to, but I really struggle with it because to me, even just saying pro ana is harmful, get rid of it, ban them. That like, oh, you're toying with someone's life. You know, if you're doing that and you're in that kind of community, you're obviously incredibly unwell. And if you just remove someone's account like that instantly, you you can cut off their support network. You can often yeah. cut off the only people who know that they're unwell. Um, yeah. And because anorexia is, I believe, still the mental illness with the highest mortality rate, it's got to be done so carefully. And so there's a lot more now, there's a lot more levels of policing. So like how many times you get a warning before you get banned or what constitutes a full ban or there's just so so many more levels and layers to it because of the nature of it but it's it's very controversial you're always going to have someone who thinks straight out ban punish done social media prison for these people yeah i know sometimes the ai does get it wrong so i don't know one question we've got here is like can it uh, Facebook and Instagram's AI or any platform really differentiate between the sort of jokey oh my god kill me and so a lot of people even though it's bad make jokes about suicide in a very light-hearted manner can the platforms 
make like tell the difference between that and a genuine cry for help or a genuine problematic post it's getting better but no you're never going to replace humans and that's why so much money goes into human content moderation at platforms they would fall apart if it weren't for humans yeah i mean that's an issue in itself because these moderators have to be exposed to so much stuff exactly we'll we'll never not have humans to do this work and i know that when covid hit i remember mark zuckerberg i think it was an interview with somebody with a reporter and the whole thing got published with his consent and one of the things he said was we're still having humans on mental health content moderation because a lot of stuff got farmed out to AI. And that was, I don't suppose you remember that moment where everything just started going wrong and there were so many things being taken down and that's because they let AI do a lot of it. Yeah. But from the beginning of COVID, because of the stakes were so high, they did keep humans on mental health moderation. Yeah, it makes sense. Isabel, I want to get a little bit of uh, specifics in terms of a person's motivations for posting this kind of content, especially on social media, because I often talk about social media as being a sort of a mirror of what society shines onto it. So is it the case that it's, uh, you know, for a lot of these people who are obviously suffering in different ways and posting this kind of content, is it? you know, the anonymity? Is it the kind of Mm -hmm. dopamine rush that they get from realizing they're not alone and people are connecting and engaging with this sort of content? Is it something else? Because I can imagine, you know, like you said, if you just took away somebody's account, it could be quite damaging. I can imagine this sort of thing is quite addictive. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's loads of kind of different motivations for people doing it. In terms of eating disorders in particular, and probably, you know, even suicide and self-harm, because these things are often quite difficult for people to talk to and because of the stigma that surrounds them. I think that because you can go on Instagram in particular and other social media platforms, you know, we're focusing on Instagram, but it's just one of lots of different platforms because you can so easily just choose a pseudonym and be a different person. And it does give you a space to just talk, honestly. And for a lot of people, Social media is the only place they've ever expressed any of these feelings. I mean, the same is true of lots of different people with different identities. It's obviously not just about mental health. And then in terms of recovery communities, you see more people in recovery communities using their real name. than you do in communities around mental health. And platform-wise, which would you say, you know, out of all of them, even out of the Facebook family of apps, is the most problematic for this sort of thing? Because I think most people would say Instagram, but I don't know what you think. Once upon a time, it was Tumblr, but I was really surprised, Isabel, to hear you say Pinterest. Um, Pinterest isn't amazing, but I know that they've been doing a lot of consulting and external work. So they work a lot with the Brainstorm Lab at Stanford. And they've developed a load of like mindfulness exercises for people. So I think Pinterest are really trying. I think the problem is TikTok. Really? Yeah, 100%. That's, that's where my energy is going now, to be honest with you, because it's so new. It's so popular with younger people. So yeah. popular with younger people. They haven't quite got their content moderation right. They haven't got their policies right. I wrote a piece for Wired recently, and then I was interviewed for another, I think it was a Vice piece a couple of weeks ago, where... One of the most popular ads that people keep seeing on TikTok is this fasting app. It's called Fastic. Yeah. There's loads of like intermittent fasting apps being advertised on there. 
you know, in the middle of lockdown, people having problems. So there's been a real push to regulate that and to get some kind of policy intervention. But I guess they'll have to go through the same stages now that every other platform's done, because like you said, they they are so new and it is a case of putting pressure in the right places. And, you know, they must rely on people like yourself to point out these areas where they can improve. Yeah, exactly. And this is one of the things that I wrote about when I wrote about Proana on TikTok was that it kind of feels unfair to directly compare them to like Instagram, like, oh, it's doing a worse job than Instagram because Instagram's had years and years and years yeah. To, to get this right to do Yeah. This is interesting. I quite want to, you know, hypothetically speaking, if I were to start a new platform tomorrow, how likely would it be that I could make the sort of algorithm or sort of antidote that there wouldn't be a, a mental health problem like this? Or is that ludicrous? Is it literally just a case of every platform is different and it takes time to learn how these behaviours manifest? I mean, it depends on loads of different things because I, I think it depends on who you're user bases you know does your user base line up with the group of the population who are most likely to struggle with mental health issues I mean humans are always gonna human you know you pick up a phone you pick up a laptop you go onto a platform it doesn't absolve who you are and what you're doing or what you're struggling with and so I think any platform that is popular with any portion of the population is going to have some kind of problem I mean total tangent but you think about like, do you remember all the club penguin controversy? And it was like this children's yeah. game forum thing, and then it became a hub for terrorist conversations. Like you, can't, you, do, you cannot predict. That's definitely not what the founders had in mind. But you know, users do what they do. Absolutely not. And so, I mean, don't get me wrong. You can build safe tech, and I think that we do need more regulation around startups personally and there are so many really fascinating stories of when startups go wrong so there was a platform called fling i don't know if you've ever heard of that it was a bit it was really really popular for a while um i think it was i'm probably going to totally get this wrong i i feel like it was like 2013 that 2014 kind of time but it could be wrong and it was a dating app and you created a profile and you sent a fling which I think was, I never use it, but you sent like a message or a a photo or a video or something. And it got sent to a total stranger anywhere in the world. And then the idea was that you hopefully would kind of connect and you'd have a fling with each other. And I can see loads of red flags there already. Oh my God. And it just, I mean, it the the problem was that it blew up quicker than the founders could really ever in their wildest dreams have imagined and you can imagine the pictures that got sent the videos and then there was a workplace culture problem this there was a business insider article about it's fascinating and then there became kind of a work culture problem because they couldn't cope with the success of the app and then it just got removed from app store i think that's been like such a common thread though because even when we talk about uh, you know big platforms like facebook and instagram it has always been the case that the platforms change too quickly and user behavior changes too quickly for any kind of government legislation or regulation to keep up with ever so i guess even if every like a new platform you create tomorrow would have the same problems because it has you know the same people um using it but maybe like you said isabel if you're regulating from the startup stage it's maybe all we can do to shorten that time in in terms of how long it actually takes to make these changes so going back to your work with facebook you say when you make suggestions to the board for for different changes in in policy and products and such 
How long roughly does it take for these to come into place? And I guess, I know you said some take longer than others. What, I guess, what factors make the difference between something that takes too long and, and something that they're able to do quite quickly? I mean, it really depends. It depends um, how big a thing it is. So like I published a paper in 2018 about kind of harmful hashtags and how people were using workaround hashtags to yeah. still engage in particular communities. And I found that Instagram and Tumblr had missed quite a lot of them. And they were also still letting people use harmful terms in their username. And yeah. then that got some press. And then someone I know is involved. He's actually on the Facebook oversight board now, but he wow. had read the paper and then he told them about it. And then they invited me to a small consultation. And then that was quick. They just did it. They just yeah. they they just moderated usernames. They got rid of the hashtags. It was like literally simple change that maybe they just overlooked. Yeah, I want to say within a week. Honestly, that it was so quick. Do you think the press has anything to do with that? Yeah, massively. Yeah, yeah. But then the press, the press is very powerful in helping to enact change yeah i mean that's its purpose right exactly and the press yeah. is, is very powerful but the press also is often a problem for people yeah. who are sort of trying to do this work because the press you know as we all know has a habit of oversimplifying and yeah. i think that the press often make demands that are impossible they make suggestions that can't actually work in yeah. practice even as something as simple as the call to get rid of all content about self-harm or get rid of all content about suicide that you're asking people to never upload it you're asking yeah. us to cure the, these problems people yeah. are always gonna talk about it put things online like so i just to me i think that the press it is also problematic in what people like what the public thinks is possible and achievable yeah. And yeah. so when that's when social media companies are seen to fail or not respond, it, that's often not the case. That's really interesting. I mean, do you find that is mainly exclusively tabloids or broadsheets sort of complicit in that? Because what I've noticed a lot more as well is there's a lot of columnists for these big broadsheets who, who tend to weigh in on issues like this. And again, language, you know, for me working in it seems to oversimplify it. So who's who would you say is most complicit in that? I think it's a mixture. I think it's a mixture. The best journalists I've worked with are for publications like Wired, Vice, ID, yeah. Cosmo, Women's Health. I think broadsheet, tablet, I think it's the same problem. And one other thing that's sort of happened more since we last spoke is, you know, the proliferation of likes being removed on uh, Facebook and Instagram. So there's been tests in several territories, obviously. How much of an impact, if any, do you think this will play in terms of taking away that validation and that dopamine hit that we sometimes talk about? I don't know if I'm honest with you. That's something I'm sort of less knowledgeable about the whole liking metrification that's more of a kind of I don't know like a psychology of social media type thing I'm honestly not sure I think that the principle of it is really interesting though and I think it got people talking about social media in a different way I'm honestly not sure but then the other thing that I did notice immediately was that they kept comment counts so I think they kept they got rid of like counts and they kept comment counts and then it just meant that people were writing more comments. Yeah. So a comment replaced a like. But then that was really interesting to me, just from, sort of from a sociological perspective, that then that still changed how people were interacting. So they then had to think of something to say, whether it was an emoji or a full sentence. So I don't know 
what kind of difference that will play, if I'm honest with you. Um, I just don't from know. A, from a pro and a group and a, you know, suicidal, you know, those sorts of communities, because you mentioned, you know, it's a case of stopping people uploading this content in the first place. In your experience, is it not the case that they're sort of seeking this validation that comes from likes? Is it more posting just to be heard, if that makes any sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. The pro-ana communities, indeed any, I would say, eating disorder communities on social media are not fundamentally about likes. They are very shut down, very private. They use code words, coded language, private accounts direct messaging like honestly it's the most locked down segment of social media well not the most but one of the most it likes have absolutely nothing to do with it in fact the more likes is a problem because more likes brings your post to greater attention you know to more people's attention yeah and there's a risk if you do you know they know they're breaking the rules and if you bring their attention to the platform or to the public there's a greater chance that their post or their account will be removed so that's a problem so actually it's the opposite really for pro for the pro ana world so seemingly something we've not talked about is whatsapp and dark social platforms where encryption is more common because we often talk about you know instagram being the sort of root of all these problems but i mean dark social and the things that you can't see that must sort of weigh on your mind a little bit as you know as yeah. part of the board and things like snapchat where it's like disappearing and it's very much between other people no that's something that it plagues me actually as a researcher because it's not even just whatsapp it's functions or features within popular platforms so as a researcher how can i research someone who has a private account i can't see their posts i can't see their stories i can't see anybody's dms and like the ethics of just friending someone just to research their account you know i would never do that i'm not that unethical and so there's always a limit to what any researcher in any discipline can tell you about mental health and social media. That's why I'm quite skeptical of any concrete claim about the relationship because there's so much that we don't have access to and we don't know. And you've got to not act like you've like discovered a new land or whatever. You've, you've got to be able to swallow your pride and say, there are things I don't know because I don't have the but that, At that point, is that where the platforms have a responsibility to give you the access or is that again sort of going into... I think that would be unethical, surely, because when we're talking about things like DMs, yeah. Yeah, no. Personally, I would never ever want a social media company to give me access to anyone's, what they would see as being very private data. Sort of on that note then, Isabel, what advice would you give to people's parents, you know, people's friends, family? How do, especially parents, I think, of younger users, how do they sort of know what to look out for, even try and spot the signs when things are so private? And how do they, you know, look at what their kids are looking at online and and how they're speaking to each other? I think it's a really hard question because I think, you know, you can go too far in one direction and you can literally surveil your kids and then they lose trust in you. Or you can do absolutely nothing and hope they come to you. But with something like an eating disorder, social media or not, it's a very secretive condition. So I think you've kind of got to do two things. I think one is that you've got to learn about, you know, the clinical signs of an eating disorder, because if you are, for example, self-harming or you have an eating disorder or you've got another kind of illness, there are going to be other signs outside of social media. 
social media is just a small part of it. And so there are going to be other things that you need to look for. But the other suggestion that I always make to people is to learn how to use the platforms. You don't have to log yeah. in and friend your kid. Like, in fact, please don't do that. But, <laughs> you, you know, just learn how it works. Learn that Instagram has DMs and stories. Learn about all the privacy features. And then when you do actually or if you do have a conversation, you're going to know what those little words mean. And it's going to make you feel more in control. It's going to make you better able to give concrete advice because you know that there are loads of different layers to this. So I think just sit down, use, learn, learn and follow, you know, the journey that they're taking. Isabel, slightly uh, controversial question. And again, a lot of these questions have only sort of uh, come up from events that have happened recently, but we're seeing a real justified backlash from a lot of advertisers and brands against Facebook. I mean, some would say justified on matters of hate and hate speech. What I'm trying to ask is, does it sometimes surprise you that certain topics will definitely get brands and advertisers sort of rallying and get their back up about things? But when it comes to mental health and the, you know the topics that we've talked about, they still get a little bit swept under the carpet? Does it feel like that? Or mm, That's a really good question. I think it's a hard question to answer because it's kind of like saying which topics are worthy or deserving. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of heat right now on things like election discourse and like racism and stuff like that because it's happening right now. And it's like everyone should get equal attention or every problem should. But I guess when... Like, say it is something like eating disorders, because it is so locked down and is so secretive, it can, you know, avoid that public awareness as well. Yeah, no, I think that that's a really good point. I think one thing that did pop into my mind when you asked that question was I would absolutely love to see more fashion brands actually talking about eating disorders, especially women's fashion brands. I think there are companies who could do what social media companies are doing, hire bring external experts in, get them working with publicity and marketing teams and just make it a normal, quote unquote, topic of conversation. I think that's something I would really like to see. And, you know, we have things like eating disorder awareness week or mental health awareness month and brands do chip in. And I I don't want to say that that topic is more important than another. I just think that's just not a helpful conversation. Um, But I I do think that eating disorders in particular just get surprisingly little attention from brands that have a surprising amount to say and are kind of implicated. No, definitely. And especially when you say things like anorexia has the highest mortality rate and fashion brands are definitely linked to it with things like, you know, showing plus size models and being diverse in, in sort of the representation that you have on your website and on your socials. Are there any brands just off the top of your head that you think are doing okay? in that space I think are doing quite well maybe other brands can look to for example I think I think it was ASOS who started showing you know unedited pictures on their website things for models with cellulite and things like that um, that they've been praised for yeah I'd have to really chew on that I think but ASOS was probably the first one that came to my mind because of the airbrushing thing and I've actually really liked I do use ASOS sometimes and one of the things I noticed during lockdown was that they they got people to just kind of like take selfies and they got the models to take pictures like of themselves 
Um, and I always really like it when brands, I mean, a few brands do this, but they will reshare pictures of just normal people wearing their clothes on their social media. So I think that that's really, really good. I think you need to be seeing different shapes and different sizes. Yeah, you need to be I seeing mean, that representation. You, Isabel, but for me, whenever I look on um, like clothing websites, even like ones that are doing better than others, arguably like ASOS, it's either like two extremes. So it's either like the normal model body that we've always seen, or it's like all the way over to plus size models. And I feel like there's an in between, whole in between spectrum of like girls who are like, I did like size 10 to 12. Uh, it was like really normal. Um, that just are completely overlooked. Yeah. And this is where share, just sharing pictures of normal people wearing your clothes comes in. Yeah. Because yeah. then more people can see themselves in the clothes and they don't have to do that awkward thing of like, well, would it look good on me? Like, how about my body type? And yeah, no, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm definitely probably going to go away from this and, uh, and think more about that. <laughs> Isabel, we're obviously an industry that's, um, obsessed with metrics, you know, measures of success and, and whatnot. I don't want to ask what the success looked like because it, you know, that'd be the wrong question. But in terms of how do we, benchmark over the next few years the kind of improvements how do we how do we realize that social media platforms are getting better that more uh, needless suicides are being prevented and you know that we're moving in the right direction mm. no i think that is a good question i think you you can metricize it to an extent so one of the things that a lot of different social media companies are doing is they're publishing content moderation transparency reports where they'll tell you how many of a particular kind of post they took down, um, which is really helpful. But what I also want to know and isn't always said is what, how many were there in the first place? So what I would like to see is not just that they're taking more harmful posts down and not just that they're kind of improving policies and improving how content moderation works. I'd also like to see the metrics of how much stuff was there to begin with. Because if there's less stuff there to begin with, then that shows that we're kind of not necessarily quite as reliant on those spaces. Um, or it means that you're maybe able to talk about your problems in a more productive way. Like you've just said, it's going to be really hard to know firmly. Yeah, I mean, because Facebook obviously has been getting a lot of backlash for having, um, I think it was to do with child pornography, actually. I could be wrong about that, but I think that was the topic of discussion in Congress um, when Zuckerberg was sort of pulled off on, you know, this is how much of that content is on your platform. And he had to come back with, okay, but this is how much we've taken down. It's actually more than anyone else. And so sometimes it's the other way around. And like you said, it goes back to like governments and the media not really getting it they just see a big number and think okay that's a big problem but actually it's like when you're doing the most to counteract that it actually puts them in a better position than some other platforms absolutely I think I mean it's really hard because I just think you're always going to have people in crisis you're always going to have people who are really really ill and their outlet is social media and I I'm not someone who wants to turn social media into a place where you can't ever have a discussion about your mental health if you're in crisis and I think it's a really really fine line my thing that I would like to see in the future is just more nuance around these discussions less demand for tech to have to solve everything they can't solve something that existed before social media but it but their effort to make platforms safer and less harmful 
can never stop. We're never, ever going to be able to just pause and stop. Yeah, definitely. Making like new ones, I guess, considered changes. I mean, that's hypothetical situation. Tomorrow, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, you name it, uh, all ban all of this content. They just do a big blanket ban on suicide, self-harm, eating disorders. What happens? Where do those conversations go? Because they're still going to happen. Yeah, well, they just shift to another platform. They would just move. And this was the thing that, you know, you had pro Anna was quite big on MySpace and then MySpace died. And then pro Anna was quite big on Live Journal. Live Journal died. Then it was big on Tumblr and Tumblr isn't as popular anymore. And they're always just going to move because it's yeah. your identity stays with you no matter what platform you're on. The biggest issue, which is like a whole other podcast, is what mental health provision is available to people in different places around the world what laws are in effect around mental health in different places around the world what financial situation are people in what's the public healthcare situation like what's stigma like you know really social media is i think it's a smaller piece of the puzzle i think that's interesting because going back to the beginning of this podcast when we talk about the blame game it's things like governments and press putting that blame and that attention onto social media platforms when in fact we're talking about like accessibility of treatment that's something that governments should be looking inward to change right absolutely and this is what i mean where does tech's responsibility start and end do you want them to become places where someone can literally log in and get therapy? It'd be a different platform in itself. Exactly. You know, do you want them to become a place where, you know, they're giving resources and they use geolocation to tailor the resources and they're doing different interventionist strategies? Where does that end before platforms basically become like hospitals? in your like a hospital in your phone I find the question you know we've kind of come full circle really I find the question of are they doing enough to be tricky because my response to that question would be well where do you see that it ends you know seemingly that 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 changes between people doesn't it one final question I wanted to ask you Isabel is uh because we've spoken to a few people from the academia space um on this podcast before and the sort of resounding theme that we've got is that we don't know the risks of social media yet in terms of we can quantify that due to you know the research and obviously these things take a while do you think we will get to a point and if so when where you know we've got enough studies to actually realize and pinpoint the effect and what impact certain decisions have had etc i don't think that will ever happen if i'm honest with you i don't think that's ever going to happen i think that we can build very clear pictures using a combination of quantitative and qualitative knowledge and i think that we can kind of i mean we already can kind of kind of kind of generalize to an extent but we're never it's like the whole violence in video games thing and sex on tv sex in music videos whatever that never reached a conclusion we never really got an answer to that and it's it's mental health and social media is not the same thing as like smoking and cancer risk or drinking and liver disease or degeneration or whatever it's you can't track it in the same way and so i think that we're never ever gonna be able to say conclusively this is the effect that social media has but what we can already say is this is an aspect of social media that is highly triggering this is an aspect of social media that is making people feel badly and that's a problem that's a problem for their mental health we already know that and we know a lot of those kinds of things but as well because social media is so complex different feature and broad exactly different features make people feel 
particular kinds of ways. So I don't think that it's a story that has an ending. And I think there are other kind of moral panics, you know, sexting, video games, violence, whatever the media and society moral panic has been. We've never reached an answer. Even smartphone addiction, a lot of those studies have been not necessarily disproven, but they've been challenged because of the research methods that they use. I just think we're never going to firmly know. Yeah, and I think that's fair to say, especially in terms of specific features. I think arguably that would be a better use of our time instead of speaking about social so broadly, I guess, when there's different elements. Yeah. I just wonder, as a really, really final point, does that ever pose a problem in your field or is it just the kind of that is the nature of it? So we do what we do, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think it's it's a frustration. I think because I'm less kind of numbers driven, I'm less, you know, I need to conclusively prove this thing. You know, I'm I'm not really a quants researcher. I'm more, okay, how does this thing make someone feel what's what's the relationship between this feature or this platform or whatever and how people live their everyday lives so I'm really interested in people's experiences and how they feel so I can sit really comfortably in this space of kind of complexity I actually really enjoy it I like a challenge but I know that a lot of other disciplines are different and they need that kind of conclusive um, answer that they're just not going to get and you always see these occasional well it's not occasional like there, there are quite a lot of studies that make a big claim and then they get a lot of press and it's you know oh we've we've finally we've chipped away at it we've solved it and then you go back and you look at the research methods or the sample and there's always something that you could kind of challenge and so I think for me in my field I can sit really comfortably in the unknown um, but I think a lot of people in different disciplines they just want the talents. <laughs> yeah I think sometimes it's more dangerous as well when it comes to topics like as serious as this to claim that you know everything when realistically nobody does. I'd have to agree with that. Isabel you've raised some incredibly interesting points there giving us and our listeners I'm sure a lot to think about. Thank you ever so much for joining us and yes, thank, um, you. thank you for you know shedding more light on what is a serious topic. Well thank you for having me I really enjoyed this thank you so much. Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please remember to leave us a review on iTunes because it really, really helps and allows us to bring you brand new episodes every single week. This has been the Social Minds Podcast with myself, Theo Watts, Eve Young, and produced by Ollie Thompson. 